Hello, this is Bill Curley. And Holly Hudley. And welcome to the podcast In Between, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church and Ordinary Life. Okay, microphone check. One, two, what is this? <laughs> it's a song. So uh, we, we are uh, climbing this ladder called the Beatitudes and teaching ordinary life. And um, this coming Sunday, we're talking about people being comforted in their sorrow. And... Uh, What I was thinking about is how our politicians are trying to scare the pajamas out of us mm. over things that they say we will lose if they don't get elected or reelected. Both sides are doing it. Absolutely both sides. Oh, sure. And I, I, I thought about how much, how much of human life in this country is governed by the fear of losing. I was just writing about this for our talk, actually. Well, you know, I know that the teachings of Jesus as well as the Christian religion itself has been uh, open to a variety of interpretations and, in, and misinterpretations all across 2000 years of its history. But it's just so ironic to me that a religion that starts really with its founder being executed, which is about the biggest loss you can have, has become a religion that is designed for winners and those at the top of the heap. Mm. It just seems ironic to me that that's the case. That is so ironic because it also is, as we said, our diagrams last week, I almost said last year, which it does always feel like every week is a year. We're in dog years right now. Um, <laughs> but when, as we diagrammed last week, that triangle, right, that, that where Jesus actually stood, if you will, is in the bottom 80%. Um, and yet this religion became one that has served the top 20%. Which is not to say, you know, there are um, liberatory aspects. I, I think Jesus's teachings were designed to be liberatory. Um, I think of Jesus sometimes like a, the first liberation theologist. I don't know if he was the first, but I, I sort of like that image in my mind. Um, and so the liberatory message got captured and sort of, it got colonized by people in power to support power. But those who are, there are so many people who, who may be in that bottom 80 to 85% who are much closer to Jesus's demographic, who are much closer to Jesus's reality, who may be better Christians in, in some ways than those in the top 20%, right? Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, for sure. The religion itself or the teachings themselves were not designed for the top 20%, but they surely got co-opted and colonized. Mm -hmm. 
this it's I think it's Eddie Glaude who talks about these two strains we, we talked about this once these two strains of Christianity in America this idea by colonizers who came with the idea that the city on the hill this is our manifest destiny to discover and conquer this land to make all these savages Christians including the African slaves including the Native Americans um, and yet there was also a part of Christianity taken up by those who were enslaved that became about relating to Jesus as the one who suffered and relating to Jesus as that suffering can lead to liberation. So these two narratives that sort of ride alongside each other, how do we make sense of that? Well, I think also how, um, what instincts are being appealed to by our politicians today uh, wants us to let fear and sorrow have the last word. Wants the fear and the sorrow to define us. And uh, I was thinking uh, in getting ready for, for Sunday that we need to go back maybe and re-emphasize the whole Buddhist path again because it's built around the fact that human beings are losers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I know that that's not all, I mean, that's not all there is to it, but the, the day that you're born, you start losing stuff. You know, you lose the yeah. comfort of the womb and you're healthy yeah. and don't get run over by a truck. You lose your home mm -hmm. when you have to go to school and you lose your innocence. And, you know, in my case, you lose your hair. <laughs> that took a while. Though. It you took had a while. I so. started early. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we, we're losers. And um, we, by trying to hang on so tightly to whether it's our material goods, whether it is our sense of, nationalism for, for many people now, not patriotism, there's a huge difference. Mm -hmm. um, people are so frightened that fear defines them, fear of losing. And um, I think that there there is a faith both in the Buddhist teachings and in the Jesus teachings about freedom and love having the last words, not fear and sorrow. Right. And so that's where I hope to go with this teaching on Sunday is that um, we, we need to be defined not by who we are and what we have, mm -hmm. but by who has us. What, mm. Whether that's in terms of, a, uh, of the personification that we give to sacred mystery or whether that is really to some worthy call, cause like the, as we would put it in the constitution freedom and justice for all right and what do we mean when we say for all for all i keep toying with that image um that i drew of the triangle leading to one point mm -hmm. versus i almost want to like say flip the triangle so that it becomes a vessel right a vessel that can be filled rather than a triangle with a flat base that has a single point. Like there's not, the, mm -hmm. the message of, 
a liberatory Jesus, the message of a compassionate Jesus is not you have this one point to get to and clamor over each other to get there. Mm-hmm. I, I really do think it is this vessel image of no, the cup runneth over kind of, you know, this, as you said, who has us, not where are we trying to get? And so you know who else talked about a ladder (laughs) was Plato. Just before Jesus's time, Plato has this whole dialogue of the symposium in which the whole discussion is about what is love? What is love? Who is Eros? Is Eros a god or is is Eros human? And, And the wisest answer, of course, comes from Socrates. This is where, in a way, we got our name for our podcast is um, Socrates says, well, I consulted the wise Diotima, the oracle. And it's a she who says, love is not here or there. Love is in the metaxis, in the in-between. Thus, all that is good, all that we are in pursuit of through, the, through avenues of thought, through avenues of being, through avenues of action, should seek to grow love in that in-between, in the metaxis. And that's how we know the highest good, is as we grow love here inside the vessel, then it becomes, again, that flipped triangle where it widens at the top as opposed to narrows. And a wise woman that uh, taught me if, um, sort of the feminine spirituality, Marilyn Keller, actually said, no, you know what? Plato misinterpreted diatima. Plato said it was a ladder. Here's how you get from one rung to the next to the next, which is still a very binary up-down way of thinking. Uh, Marilyn Keller said diatima was talking about a spiral, something much more fluid than a ladder, much more open. There's not just one direction to go, but there's this widening and this opening and then this expansion that happens also. So I wonder if the Beatitudes, yes, there's a ladder, right, of the way that they're delivered, but they're also expansive. Right. Yeah, I, I think that um, the, this Beatitude that we're up to for Sunday is really saying that in order to go forward, you have to get it that the journey is a gift it's not something that you grasp mm-hmm. and that that's also as i ended last sunday saying that we're giving a mixed message <laughs> you, you, have, you have to be in a position to receive the gift yeah. um and of course i think that that comes by having a spiritual practice and i, I think that that comes also by coming empty-handed yeah. Uh, that we, we're not trying to grasp something. We're trying to get in a position to receive something, yes. something that it is a gift that we already have, but we're just not aware of it until we do our work. And then we become more and more aware of it as we go further into the, in, into the journey. Yeah. At least that's my experience. And well, uh, Not just to create an open vessel, for God to flood in or for love to flood in, but to become ourselves an open vessel, to come palms up, open hands, rather than fingers clenched, holding tight. 
So I, I I don't know that I will do this Sunday or not. I may. I'm thinking about it. But if I don't, I'd like to do it now. Um, there was a man, there is a man in our community who a number of years ago um, lost his wife. They, they had this habit of getting in bed at night and reading, and he noticed that she had fallen asleep without turning her light off. So he reached over to turn out her bedside lamp and realized that she was dead. She died just that quickly. And uh, it was a huge loss to our community. She was a, I'm sure you've heard the phrase before, somebody was a pillar of the church. Yeah. She was a pillar of the church. Mm -hmm. And um, it was just a horrible loss for everybody. I, I, I know that I attended her memorial service at St. Paul's and if the, Fire marshal had seen us that day, he would have closed us down yeah. because there were people standing in the in the the yard around the church, couldn't get in. All the people could not get in for her memorial service. It was amazing. Mm -hmm. And I kept up with her husband over the year that followed. And I would call him or send him a note or something like that. And about a year after her death, he called me up and said that he would like to take me to lunch. And uh, so we did, we went to lunch and after we had ordered, I said, so how are you doing? And he said, I'm doing okay. And I said, if I had to put a reason to why you are doing okay, what would that be? And he said, well, somebody gave me a little book that uh, I've read in every day since her death and it's been very helpful to me and i said i want to know the name of that book and he said i'll buy you a copy i said no if that book has meant that much to you i'll go get it right now and he said well get three copies because you'll get one to keep you'll give two of them <laughs> yeah. away so i went yeah. and bought it bought three copies and he was right i gave two of them away and then i bought 250 copies yeah and I gave one to every member of the class. And I, I don't be sure Ordinary Life had started then. Maybe it had. I, I didn't get my copy from yeah. you. I uh, may have been in Boston at that time. <laughs> but I know which book you're talking about. <laughs> so the book, yeah, so the book is Always We Begin Again. And it is um, John McQuistion, who is an Episcopal, lay leader in Memphis, Tennessee. He's also a lawyer. I'm sure he's retired by now, uh, but he did this rewriting of the rule of Benedict to make it accessible mm -hmm. to everybody. And it's gone through a couple of revisions. The most recent one really emphasizes the role of Thanksgiving in it. Mm -hmm. I remember mm -hmm. I, I gave a dear friend of mine who's uh, uh, vicar in the Church of England a copy and he read it and he's also an authority on Benedict and he didn't much care for the book because mm. it, it didn't mention Jesus. <laughs> I thought that was oh, one funny. of the strong points of it actually right. because right. Uh, it, it, my question was trying to make the rule of Benedict universal. And, That's exactly right. Huh? Yeah. 
go ahead. I just am agreeing yeah. emphatically. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> trying to open yeah. it up. And, and yeah. again, I think that that's what this blessing that mm-hmm. is talked about in the second beatitude is all about. It's not until you open up that you're able to receive the gift. And um, yeah, we, we grieve, we, we lose parents and partners and sadly sometimes children. Um, but we don't let the grief define us because giving up and letting go is such a huge part of what it means to be human. We can't confine Jesus to the church. We can't define Jesus to Christianity or wasn't even Christian to Judaism. We must make the the, the, the teachings fill the whole vessel. And mm-hmm. which does not mean that everyone has to universally become Christian. I think that was maybe one of the the overshoots or the failures even of the Christian church is this this bent on converting everyone, you know, this idea again, that those colonizers who came to America, their idea was that if we convert these quote unquote savages, then they can participate in this world with us. But whereas I think Jesus's message was the exact opposite, you know, (laughs) that, that it's no, it's it's filling the whole vessel with that variety, with diversity, with, mm-hmm. with the world, with with um, with the objects in the land and the material presence, the fleshly presence of our being. It's not to conform others to become one way, but to help one way to open up to the whole world. Mm-hmm. Again, to quote that beautiful line by Sarah Grant. It, wasn't the way because Jesus walked it. Jesus walked it because it was yeah. the way. He already had that in mind, this universal message of, of belonging. Yeah, I, I want to go back to use a line that I used when we first started this teaching on the Jesus aspect of how Buddha and Jesus can guide us through the pandemic. Um, I grew up in a tradition that said people needed Jesus. People needed to be saved. They needed to have faith in Jesus, believe in Jesus. That was what. And one of the ways that my mind has changed over the years is what I see right now is that people need others to be Jesus to them and to be Jesus for them, to advocate for them, uh, for those at the bottom where Jesus had his... uh, huge audience. Uh, I mean, not to say that he was not listened to by those at the top because those at the top silenced him or tried to. But um, right now we have people who are in such pain, such fear, such sorrow, which has led to such anger, such divisiveness. Uh, I was wondering earlier this morning, where's our Nelson Mandela? Mm. I like that question, and I also, the image that first comes to mind is um, these athletes who are so beautifully using their station and their position and their privilege to lift up those who are seen as being on the bottom, those who are 
um, what would have been called in Jesus's time dispensable. Mm -hmm. And so there we have this top tier lifting up the bottom tier and somewhere those two converge. So maybe our Nelson Mandela is many, many, many people, many people, like a fractal, right? Like a repetition of, of an idea and at many levels or many scales that it may not be enough even to put that all in one person as we wanted to do with Martin Luther King, for example, but, but to put this power of liberation and bringing together in the hands of all of us. Well, we do have those people. I mean, mm -hmm. Brian Stevenson, for example, is somebody who comes to mind for me and the people who have been attracted to his work. I mean, mm -hmm. a huge number of people who mm -hmm. are working in that mm -hmm. justice system. I still think it might be helpful if we mm -hmm. had kind of a charismatic figure mm -hmm. who really stood out as somebody who was for justice for love, for inclusion, for fairness, that might be helpful. Yeah, yeah, maybe we're still a people who need a leader. Maybe as you know, to quote Diarmut Omirku's title, maybe the disciples haven't come of age yet. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and I agree about Brian Stevenson, but you know what he says too, is he doesn't say, I'm going to bring the problem to you through my words and through my institute and through this um, Equal Justice Initiative. He says, no, you got to get proximate to the problem. You got to get proximate. You got to come near to where the hurt and the pain is. We cannot look from afar and understand it. We have to get right there in it. And to really be able to transform not on a, not only on a personal level but on a collective level and mm -hmm. I, I really love that you got to get proximate to it he says that over and over and over again in his talks um he certainly brings it to folks by in the way in the work that he does but he's really asking us get proximate to it and that is again i think that's a message of jesus come near come near and and be part of this vessel I don't want to talk to those confined into the pinprick of the triangle. I want to bring my message outside to the fields, to the mountains, <laughs> to the people. Um, mm -hmm. And that, that's the liber that is the liberatory message of Jesus. It doesn't belong in a special place. It belongs everywhere, pervasive, like a weed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about this, um, and you tell me what you think. Uh, there have been three, at least three movements in American history that have been called Great Awakenings. Maybe, maybe more, but three that I could identify. Um, the, there were these moral agree with them and their mm -hmm. effects or not there were time there have been times in american culture where people have been grasped by a new vision of how things could be and things have turned around i think one happened in the 60s uh you know the historic great awakenings with uh john wesley and whitfield and all those people in the past uh but there have been other moral awakenings that have occurred 
to cause people to see that, for example, the Vietnam War was not a good thing. We had a, do, you, do you think that the circumstances could come again where there could be another great moral, spiritual, religious awakening for this country? So I do. And I think, I suppose you could say, well, every moment is sort of some version of that moment. And it's never a single moment. Usually it's something that, that, that amplifies over time, that takes years to kind of build up. Um, so the civil rights movement, it didn't just begin in 1964 and end in 1968, right? Folks were, folks were building up to this movement for, and, and deliberately so, training for it. What does it mean to be nonviolent? What does it mean to really engage in this way? This was years in the making. Um, so it feels like we're getting to that apex again, right? Like where we're going to have a decisive moment where this sort of culmination, isn't that sort of the metaphor of the cross that Kronos time meets Kairos time? Mm-hmm. And that Kairos moment may be a flashbang, but it's it certainly isn't in a vacuum, right? It's led to by a series of many, many events. I thought often that I don't know what human evolution looks like. We are becoming part robot. We have machines in our bodies that help keep our hearts running. We have artificial limbs and um, have transplants from other uh, people into our bodies. So we're, we're not just one thing anymore. But I've wondered so often is if our evolutionary transformation is on a spiritual and moral level, no longer on a physical material level. I think we're at one of these kind of pivotal moments, kind of asking ourselves, where do we stand? Martin Luther King in his letter from a Birmingham jail asked this question, will we be activists for love or for hate? And I think that question still exists today. And I also think it is an environmental question. Will we be activists to preserve or destroy? Will we be activists for consumption or um, what's the opposite of consumption? Um, We are asked these questions daily, but Mm -hmm. it's hitting what I perceive, at least in my lifetime, Mm -hmm. to be a sort of crisis point. So we have to do our, we have to do our own work. I keep coming back again and again to uh, that question that uh, Carl Jung was asked near the end of his life when we were in dire situation because of Vietnam and a variety of other things back in that 60s era. And and Carl Jung was asked, will we make it? Mm-hmm. And his answer was, if enough of mm-hmm. us do our own work. I think the time is coming where it can't be. That's why I say like to, de- to be dependent on a single leader at this moment um, may not be the answer because this seems to need a collective shift. You know, this is what we would call a quantum leap of consciousness mm-hmm. may be needed right now. Carl, Carl, you died in uh, 1961. So he was making a comment about um, 
in, in the years that was, was leading up to this kind of ferment that happened in America, he's a very perceptive man and being able to see what was happening. And we're, we're so in the grips of these shadow aspects that, uh, you know, I, I fear could destroy the country and maybe that has to happen for something new to be born. I don't know. I hope that doesn't happen, but I do have concern for the world that your children will live in. You must have that too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Not just because they're brown bodied little boys, but because of the environmental catastrophe that they're inheriting. You know, that, that puts a lot of weight on their shoulders to right the ship for mm-hmm. us. You know, and uh, that's a lot to ask, Mm -hmm. a lot to ask. And every generation inherits something. But, you know, I wonder sometimes if if what we haven't sort of forgotten is our lineage, like our ancestry. You know, what what has kind of brought us to this point? I, I read something that sort of struck me the other day and someone said, you know, I can't even name my great grandparents. And I thought real quick, oh shoot, I can't remember all of my great-grandparents' names either. And I thought one of the things we may have lost in this very American way of being is some connection to ancestry. Because America is founded on newness and difference and, um, and individualism. And the individual can succeed above all else. And so this thread that sort of has connected us, even from old worlds to new worlds. I can name my first ancestor in America. I can't name anyone before that. I, I don't know who they were, but they existed, mm-hmm. you know? Well, it's been commented on that we live in a time where uh, maybe for the first time in history, people have had the luxury to have the kind of conversations that you and I are having right now and for them to have the kind of impact that they're having because of technology. Um, I was mm-hmm. thinking in, in preparing for Sunday, if it would be a wise thing for us to revisit Richard Rohr's understanding of the cosmic egg, because we have people who, some people are living in the dome of just my personal story, yeah. Some people are living in the in the dome of our tribal story, but it's not like we've been able to move be, beyond those. Mm-hmm. Uh, as Ken Wilber says, you transcend and include. Mm-hmm. How, how can we transcend the levels of meaning and identity that we have right now to get to a story that includes everybody? Right. And yeah. um, I know that I'm preparing to... to write and give a homily that will be aired all next week about um, we're going to talk about um, how we live in a revenge culture mm-hmm. uh, you hit yeah. me i am going to get you back yeah we definitely live in that um give and take kind of eye for an eye type of society and, and Jesus challenged that too in his day, you know, this, that, that kind of way of being. This, um, I think about people, you know, like Loyal Rue is someone that you read and that I have, have read his book. And 
uh, Yamamoto Amiraku again, but cosmologists like um, Brian Swim and um, I, I would put Einstein among them, um, they are looking for a shared story. You know, there is a shared story that we have, and that is the cosmic evolutionary story. Mm-hmm. What becomes hard as a person right now to relate to that story is that we can't even conceive of 14 billion years. You know, I was saying, like, many of us can't remember our great-grandparents' names, <laughs> or some of us, I, I won't put everyone in that category. Um, so 14 billion years ago is like, whoa, can't even, and it, and it was probably even different than 14 billion years ago because how we measure cosmic time is very different than how we measure calendar time. So, yeah, so this, this kind of identity crisis of the human where do we place ourselves in that cosmic time? What does it mean that we are this tiny little being in this great swath of time that we can conceive of even that amount of time? I don't think animals have been known to conceive of time in that way, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean they're not sentient. It doesn't mean that they can't feel or think or don't have a purpose. They absolutely have a purpose. And they absolutely have wisdom, their own wisdom. But to be able to be a being that can conceive of 14 billion years, mm-hmm. or at least try, is overwhelming. So how do I make sense of my small, tiny little self in this vast, vast swath of time? I think that is a bit of an identity. You know, we, it's an identity crisis. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and funny, you should say the cosmic egg. I was looking for something to ride on yesterday for a little exercise I was leading. And um, I picked up a little journal out of my drawer and guess what fell out of it? A folded up handout of the cosmic egg. Now, where did you get that? I don't know. Some guy passed him out one day, <laughs> made 250 copies and gave them out to everyone. <laughs> So maybe that's a sign that we have to talk about the cosmic egg if we've both thought about it. I know you have been reading Roar's book on the Beatitudes. Is it in there? I haven't gotten to it yet. I'll find it somewhere because it might be helpful for us to visit that. I was was thinking in reading Eugene Peterson's translation of the Beatitude that we're looking at for Mm -hmm. this Sunday. Let me read that to you because I think it's good that the the way that most of us are familiar with it is blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. This is the way that Eugene Peterson has it. You're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. A full cup of water cannot be filled, right? When we are empty is when we can be filled. I, I remember Roar saying uh, a numerous times that if you really, really want to hear the gospel, you have to be willing to be confronted before you can be comforted. Mm-hmm. And I think that the way that I feel confronted is to come to the realization of how unlike Jesus I am in terms of mm. the, my, my knee-jerk reactions to things. You know, if I had been Jesus and I had been killed and I did, in fact, come back and walk on the earth after that, my first items of agenda would be to get those who had done me in 
And I would go to people like Peter and say, I told you so. I told you you were going to betray me. But he didn't do yeah. any of that. <laughs> yeah. Remember that kiss? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, that there that reminds me of a story of that is attributed to Native American wisdom, which is the young boy asking his grandfather, um, granddaddy, I keep having these good thoughts and these bad thoughts and these good thoughts and these bad thoughts, which one will I become? And he said, grandson, there are two wolves. One is good and one is bad. And we all have those two wolves in us. And the grandson says, well, which one will win? And the grandfather says, the one that you feed. Yeah. Yeah. That story is so beautiful and I don't know where it originates, but it is, must be so sort of wise that it's been utilized in many, 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 many cultures. There's also, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine yesterday who I just love. You would love him too. He's so brilliant and uh, precocious. And we were talking about, I, I've, I have been really low lately. Um, I've been really tired. Um, the weight of a lot of the uh, there's a racial trauma, I think, that is really a thread. And, and if we're at all open to it as white folks, that racial trauma impacts us too. And it's that sort of, you know, we so often want to say, oh, that trauma exists over here. It's not mine to confront, but I think it is ours to confront maybe in a different way. What does it mean to be, um, to be privileged or in power? and to grapple with that. And what am I willing to lose? Am I willing to lose that so that I can be emptied to create a system that works for all? And the trauma of just, we were talking about this not long ago and Josh read an article called the Trayvon generation that he shared. Maybe he shared it with you too. If not, I'll ask him to. In which these kids who have grown up with cell phones in their hands, who have access to seeing live shootings, live killings right away, that they have this thread of trauma running through their lives right now, you know, because they've seen so much that is real life. This is not a video game. And to wonder if you're a kiddo who lives in a brown body, you're like, well, could that be me? If I'm seeing all these other kids and, and adults who look like me being shot, you know, in, in wide open spaces. Um, but Andy, my friend said, you know, so many of us think that um, hope breeds despair. In other words, when our hope is dashed is when we feel despair. But he said, but I actually think that wise spirituality teaches us that despair breeds hope. He said, there's some beautiful spiritual practices, etc. He said, and the one I can think of that really teaches that the most is Buddhism. That despair, suffering, opening yourself up to nothingness, to being empty, is where hope arises. Right. What do you think of that? I think that's spot on. I think that is exactly spot on. Yeah. And, and we um, affirm that faith, that peace and love and joy trump everything. 
um, it's a stance of faith. And I think that, you know, as Joanna Macy says, there are a lot of stories out there. You pick the one you want to live. Mm -hmm. You can live the business as usual or things are going to hell in a handbasket or you can live the story of possibility. That's where you put your energy in, into, into that sort of thing. So I believe that. I think that's yeah. what we, we have to do. You know my favorite book series, right? <laughs> so there's this point in, in Harry Potter, as you know, is um, linked inextricably to Voldemort, the most evil of all wizards. And as he gets older and he learns of this, connection that he has with Voldemort. Not only did Voldemort kill his parents, but he tried to kill Harry. And so they're linked by this curse. And as he is grappling with the losses he's been in his life, he, he has a godfather and he says to his godfather, I'm terrified of the ways we are alike. I am so angry all the time and I'm so hurting. Godfather, another version of which wolf will you feed, says it isn't how you are alike. It's how you are different. Um, and, and, and you have a choice as to which strand you choose to go toward. And I think, yes, mm. we know somewhere abstractly that love, kindness, joy, compassion are the ways that we conquer evil in all of its forms. But the everyday reality of that ha is how are we choosing it? What are we choosing today? that embodies that? What are, what are we choosing today that embodies love, joy, compassion? <laughs> I th I, when you were talking about that, what I, the image that I had in mind was of um, the first encounter I had with Thich Nhat Hanh after reading several of his books and then having a chance actually to hear and see him and know that I was in the presence of somebody who really practiced what he taught. And, uh, you know, he, he would say, um, there's no way to peace. Mm -hmm. Peace is the way to be. Now, there's no way to love or to hope. These are the ways that we have to be. Mm -hmm. I have tried to develop over the years the habit of saying peace to people, you know, mm -hmm. Peace be with you. Peace, peace. And um, I still try to do that. But my belief is that um, if I am involved in practices that embody distributive justice, peace will take care of itself. Mm -hmm. And that's where our energy needs to be put. Yeah. Agreed. And I, I, I think that yes. that's what I want to try to say Sunday is that we have to give up the things that get in the way of that so that we can be an embodiment of those teachings. And this, I hope we'll get to tease out a little bit more. I'm working out how best to say this, but um, we are so fearful of losing some position where, so this is where the ladder falls short for me. The ladder has room for a person on the rung, you know, we're so concerned about losing our position on the ladder, mm -hmm. you know? Um, 
and it, there's something about surrender there, right? Like how do we surrender needing to climb the ladder at all? So many things in society are related to the ladder, the ladder of success, the ladder of, if you get this degree, you get paid this much. If you get this degree, you get paid this much right. more. You know, we have so many ladders. Right. Somebody said that um, it doesn't matter how far or how you climb the ladder, if it's against the wrong wall. <laughs> true. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. That's a great one. I would love, however, to read the poem Wild Geese. Please by Mary Oliver. It's such a ubiquitously known poem, but it is so about suffering that opens up to, to hope. Okay. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese high in the clean blue air are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing your place in the family of things. Wow, I love that. Thank you. See you Sunday. Ah, see you Sunday. <laughs> Thanks.